0: Welcome to another episode of Bowel Sounds, the Pediatric GI Podcast, the official podcast of the North American Society of Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition, or NASPGAN. My name is Peter Liu.
1: And my name is Jennifer Lee, and we are Pediatric Gastroenterologists at Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio.
2: My name is Jason Silverman, and I am a Pediatric Gastroenterologist at Stollery Children's Hospital in Edmonton, Alberta.
0: So this episode of Bowel Sounds is focused on the topic of advocacy. And we just want to take a quick moment to address the importance of advocacy, especially in light of recent events in the United States and the emotional and heartfelt movement for change and support for each other that these events has triggered.
1: I think a lot of us might be thinking about what can we do to help and what and how can we advocate. And we really hope that although this episode was recorded before these events occurred, there is a lot of advice on how to take those feelings and take action.
2: We encourage everyone to check out the recent NASPgan statement written by the members of the Diversity Special Interest Group. Although in this episode we focus on one particular issue relevant to child safety, it's important for our members to remember that advocacy is a much broader ideal. And to quote the statement, we encourage all of our members to take action for justice and equality for all, regardless of race, ethnicity, religion, sexual orientation, gender, socioeconomic status, or country of origin. With that in mind, we'll move on. And, you know, June is Child Safety Month, and so it's very fitting today that we'll be talking to Dr. Brian Rudolph about the really important topic of magnet ingestions in children, as well as about the tireless advocacy work that he has done on this front and others. Dr. Rudolph is director of the Fatty Liver Program at Children's Hospital at Montefiore and an associate professor of pediatrics at Albert Einstein College of Medicine in the Bronx, New York. While Dr. Rudolph's clinical focus is in non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, he has been a vocal and tireless advocate for children's health through his involvement in the Public Affairs and Advocacy Committee at NASPGAN, where he's been chair for the past three years. One of the most important issues he has taken on has been the fight to remove high-powered magnets from the marketplace. We're really excited to have him join us today to talk about magnets and more. While most of our listeners will know, it's important that everyone realizes just how dangerous rare earth or high-powered magnets can be. Often sold as toys or desk sets, these small, powerful magnets, if ingested, can lead to gastrointestinal injury, including perforations, leading to peritonitis and even death. These ingestions are all too common. In one study using data from the National Electronic Injury Surveillance System in the United States, nearly 15,000 cases of suspected magnet ingestions were reported from 2010 to 2015. This same study showed a significant decrease in cases during years in which began was involved in federal actions, which provided evidence for the impact of advocacy. Unfortunately, in 2016, a court overturned the prior judgment, partially repealing the ban on sale of these magnets in the United States.
0: So today we'll be discussing the controversy around banning these magnets, the need for physicians and in particular pediatric GI doctors to get involved in advocacy for this topic and also other areas as well as his personal experience in incorporating advocacy for child health and safety into his career. On to the show. Let's
1: do it.
2: Dr. Rudolph, thank you so much for joining us today on the Bow Sounds podcast. Happy to be here. You have spent a huge amount of time over the past few years on a number of really important child health advocacy projects, but probably most prominently is your involvement with work on trying to ban the sale of small, high-powered magnets, uh, which is a huge child safety issue. Uh, we're looking forward to talking about all about this magnets as well as the other advocacy projects with which you've been involved over the last few years.
1: So before we really get into the topic of high-power magnet ingestion, I want to ask a little bit about yourself. So how did you develop this interest in patient advocacy? Um, and were there any specific mentors or role models who really helped you develop this passion?
3: Yeah, so... Uh, I, I actually spend most of my time now um, uh, doing clinical care and, and clinical research. So i have funded researcher at this point, so 80% of my time is is for clinical research in pediatric fatty liver disease. And I've always had an interest in advocacy and public policy and I guess politics more broadly, but it seems like in academic medicine, it's, it's very hard to get into this sort of uh, a niche. And so when the opportunity came up, actually during fellowship is when I I first started doing uh, advocacy to join a committee, I joined the Public Affairs and Advocacy Committee. And um, that was really my first exposure to doing this kind of work. I don't think to answer your question directly that I had any specific mentors in advocacy, but I certainly had a number of role models. So Dr. Maria Olivia Hempker was the first chair of the Public Affairs and Advocacy Committee when I joined and certainly someone that I, look up to and has helped me over the years. And I've certainly gotten advice from her and many others, including some of our policy consultants and lobbyists, and I've learned a ton from them. But I, I think I really just learned by doing, and the more I got into it, the more interesting it became, the less intimidating it became. And I think like all of us, I got into medicine to help people. And to me, if you can um, help a, a patient in the clinic, that's great. But when you can pass a law or enact some sort of policy that can help thousands or millions of people at, at, at the same time, to me, that's, I think, the reason that I went into this and working further upstream and public policy parlance is, to me, the best part of doing this
0: work. Oh, yeah, that's super impressive. I mean, you have a full research career, and then you're also doing all this advocacy work. And I think all of us as pediatric GI doctors understand how important it is to advocate um, at that level. Um, But, you know, very few of us, as you've mentioned, like are actually doing it. And um, to focus a little bit on what you've spent a lot of your time on recently, um, high-powered magnet ingestion, um, before we talk more specifics you know, I think all of us who are pediatric GI doctors are familiar with why, um, these magnets can be dangerous for children, but for the general pediatricians and patients and families, um, why, what makes them so dangerous? Why do we care so much about, um, high powered magnets?
3: Yeah. So I think, um, it's an important question, of course, and for those who who aren't familiar with these products, maybe some background is helpful. So these products first, um, were sold in uh, 2009 and they're sold predominantly as desk toys or, or novelty items, um, stress relievers. They're small little balls, about the size of a BB. They were first sold in a five millimeter diameters and they're now sold in a variety of different um, sizes between two and a half and about five millimeters or so. So they're very small. They're sold in sets of a couple hundred usually and uh, you take these little magnets together and you can build shapes or structures. They're extremely dangerous, however, because of their strength. They're about 30 times stronger than a typical refrigerator magnet. And so just as they'll come together outside the body, they'll come together inside the body as well. So um, if a child were to swallow these things, and as pediatric gastroenterologists, of course, we all know that kids swallow pretty much everything. Um these magnets will come together inside the body as well. And and when they connect across the bowel, they essentially impede the blood flow through the bowel. So the pressure between the magnets will cut off the vascular supply to the bowel, leading to necrosis and perforations, fistulas, abscesses, et cetera. So there can be a significant amount of morbidity with this, especially if they're not Taken care of quickly, even mortality. So, there's been a couple of cases where the magnets have led to a twisting of the bowel, volvulus leading to widespread necrosis of bowel. At least two kids have died. Several others have required widespread resection. At least one of them that I know of, a highly publicized case out of Louisiana. A kid now has short bowel syndrome because of this and has been on TPN for several years. So, they can be quite significant morbidity or even mortality with these uh, products. and. Part of the challenge, of course, as well, is is that they look like toys, um, uh, certainly to a child. But they the risk of these is not very obvious. I think to any consumer that isn't familiar with them, and so that it complicates things, makes it difficult. For sure,
2: and and maybe just one other example. I'll tackle on. The, you mentioned the small kids uh, swallowing uh, these magnets. Um, we've also encountered the teenagers who uh, who use them to sort of pretend that they have a tongue piercing or or, or uh, lip piercing or something like that, and inadvertently ingest the magnet as a result, because um, we have definitely seen it in older kids as well. Um, you know,
3: anecdotally, we've been seeing a number of um, school-aged children, younger school-aged children with these magnet ingestions recently as well, um, who seem to be getting them in school from friends or um, after-school classes before covid outbreak here in new york at least um, before social distancing i had two cases in the past several months of kids one got uh, magnets in a dance class from a friend another one got them at school from a friend a kid brought them in and just started passing out you know, a small number of magnets to a bunch of friends. So there, again, the risk isn't particularly obvious. And so older kids, as you mentioned, Jason will use them as piercings and younger kids may get them in a variety of sources. So it's been a real challenge from a, a public health perspective to try to prevent these injuries.
2: For sure. And I I think you make a, a really strong, uh, case for the danger. I think you described it really well about what makes these magnets so dangerous to our population. Maybe you can speak a little bit about how NASP began, first got involved in the fight about these magnet ingestions and um, maybe a little bit more about the history of sort of what has happened on the file over the last few years. So, you know, what's been the progress that's been made over time?
3: Yeah, um, how long do we have? This is <laughs> this is a this is a long this is a long and complicated story. These products first came on the market in two thousand and nine. In about I think it was two thousand eleven, Dr. Adam Newell sent out an email on our pediatric GI listserv asking if anybody had seen any of these cases. And he described I think a couple recent cases at his institution and I don't remember the exact time frame, but maybe within a couple hours, there were dozens of responses. And I think it became pretty clear, at least to me, that this was uh, a huge public health problem. From there, um, Adam spearheaded a uh, survey to uh, colleagues, again, on the listserv. And he recorded, I I believe it was the first case series at the time of several hundred patients. And um, once we got a sense of the scope of the problem and the severity of the problem, we started working um, in the advocacy arena. And that's about the time that I actually joined the committee. And this was one of the first things that I started working on back in 2011, 2012. We didn't really know where to start, quite frankly. Uh, I think we we started in Congress because we thought that that was the place to start.
1: So you just call them, Hey, Congress. Yeah, no. So, so
3: <laughs> you, so, um, our policy consultant, um, for NASP again, Camille Bonta, who is kind of the heart and soul of all that we do. And we rely obviously very heavily on her experience. She set up meetings and you meet with, um, with, with congressional staff members and for senators or congressional members that you think will be sensitive to your particular issue, you meet with uh, staffers on the particular committee that may have jurisdiction over a particular uh, uh, subject or agency. And so that's where we started. And when we got there, they basically said, what do the Consumer Product Safety Commission say? What do the CPSC say? To be honest, had no idea what the CPSC even was before starting this. But the CPSC, for those who don't know, is the Consumer Product Safety Commission. They're a small agency. Uh, their headquarters are in Bethesda, in Maryland, and they're responsible for regulating and uh, essentially all consumer products other than automobiles, guns, and food um, and medications, drugs. So huge, huge. Portfolio things that they're responsible for, and a, a particularly small agency with a small budget. And um, we went to them again in early, I think it was January of 2012, with these data that we had from Adam and his survey, um, along with testimony from there were five of us that spoke at that time, and um, we basically told the CPSC, "Hey, look, these are a problem. We've been seeing this." we think you should do something about it. And, and as it turns out, the CPSC was already aware of this. The CPSC had cases already that were reported to them and had investigated those, those cases. And so they, um, took what we said actually, um, quite seriously and acted extremely quickly. So a couple months after that, actually, I think within weeks, they started working with manufacturers. They started, um, uh, making sure that their labeling was correct, that they had warning labels, and started working with them to uh, try to ensure safety through packaging and, and advertisement marketing. They also started a PR safety campaign around that time. As injuries continued to increase in mid 2012, they basically issued something called a stop sale order. Uh, and they asked Amazon and all other retailers to stop selling these products, and then they started to institute a recall. I have to say it was pretty remarkable given that the agency hadn't done so for over a decade prior to this. So it's a really rare action for the CPSC to step in and actually request manufacturers to stop selling a product that, that they themselves labeled as a substantial product hazard in uh, CPSC's uh, terminology. In addition to that, they started working on a rule set to effectively ban high-powered magnets. A couple manufacturers started to fight the CPSC and most notably Zen Magnets. So Zen sued the CPSC. They sued the CPSC on actually two fronts, on both the recall and the prospective rule set, which are two separate legal issues. And so the uh, first success from Zen surprisingly came in about 2016, that uh, they, the end of 2016, the 10th Circuit Court of Appeals overturned the CPSC's actions. And then shortly thereafter, in 2017, a uh, circuit court overturned the uh, recall order from the CPSC. So essentially, Zen fought the CPSC, overturned their actions, and it basically allowed these magnets to be back on the market as long as they're sold uh, to children over the age of or adults over the age of 14.
1: So it sounds like NASPGEN was really working to get the ball rolling, when all these lo- lawsuits and litigations happen, was NASPAGAN named in any of this lawsuit or were you involved in the lawsuit at all?
3: So uh, we were not named in the lawsuit. NASPGEN was was sort of instrumental in, in bringing this issue to the CPSC, certainly. Um, we've been involved for basically since 2012, so for the better part of a decade. Um, uh, we've written, I can't tell you how many letters the agency responded to a number of petitions and and briefs, we have organized efforts to try to get um, physicians, parents, supporters to encourage the CPSC to take action on these issues, um, and certainly to try to get these products off the market after even uh, the courts have taken action and brought them back on the market. So we've been involved for this entire time and and been spearheading the efforts uh, since about 2012.
1: So last question from me before we kind of move on, but I used to do a lot of advocacy and medical school and residency, and I've been in those 10-minute meetings with the senators on Capitol Hill and never really made a great connection with somebody. And I know that you've been able to win the support of some key people in government. So can you talk about how that happened and maybe give some tips for those of us who may want to do this in the future?
3: I think going to Capitol Hill is very intimidating for most of us. And I certainly was intimidated the first couple times that I did it. And eventually you realize that you're talking to 20 somethings and it becomes a lot less intimidating and, you know, a whole hell of a lot more than they do most of the time on the particular topic that you're talking about. And if you're interested about it and you're passionate about it, um, that comes across. And particularly, I think some things that are helpful are, first of all, uh, don't be intimidated, as I mentioned. Second thing that's important is... Is to make it personal, share a story, share a connection, share x-rays, share a patient story, something personal, make it personal for them. Uh, if you talk about medicine and pathophysiology and all the things that we like to do as physicians, you're going to lose them. So make it personal, they'll remember that. And follow up. Follow-up, follow-up, follow-up. So the staffers will always say that the best meetings they have are ones that have no follow-up. There They never hear from the person again. Keep following up with them and, and until you get the answer the answer that you're looking
1: for. By email, by phone, or how do you do that?
3: Email, phone, uh, any any way that you can, keep following up with them.
1: Kind of like great. we get people to do interviews for Bell Sounds. <laughs> yeah,
0: there, there you go. So going back to the issue of high-powered magnet ingestions, so after all these lawsuits, um, where are things at right now? And I think us as GI doctors, we see these ingestions coming back in again. And you know, what can we do uh, to try to help support you and your team in this fight?
3: So um, where things are right now, so there's there's probably two big things going on, the first of which is that the manufacturers – are trying to push the cpsc to institute um a different rule set a rule set that instead of effectively banning the products would just require warning labels that they feel that that's sufficient to prevent injuries and there has been pretty widespread agreement entirely widespread uh, amongst all of us within the academic medical societies and consumer safety groups that that is not sufficient. In fact, the CPSC staff has gone on record on uh, a number of meetings and uh, in other forums to say the same, that warning labels are not sufficient for these particular products. We've been fighting them on, the, on that effort. Again, we've been pushing for what are called performance standards. So we, we want to actually see the strength of magnets change and or the size. So we want these magnets to be either too big so that kids can't swallow them, or we want them to be weak enough that it's not going to cause any intestinal damage when swallowed so we were fighting them on that front we're also moved on to congress so we kind of came full circle of where we started originally we went back to congress and have been successful in getting legislation introduced both into the house and into the senate senator blumenthal introduced language of the Mag- magnet injury prevention act in late 2019 and representative cardenas in california Introduced the same legislation essentially in the house earlier this year Um, Realistically, that's not going to be going anywhere this legislative cycle But is something that we hope to build on and we think is a framework for uh, safety around this product moving forward What people can do now are a couple of things. So first and foremost, for any physician listening, please report any of these cases that you see to the Consumer Product Safety Commission. It is very easy to do. You can go on the CPSC website, go to saferproducts.gov. There's a link that says report an unsafe product. Click on that link. uh, They're HIPAA compliant, so you don't need to worry about any privacy issues. Put in as much details as you can and uh, specifically, it would be very helpful to mention the mention the brand name of the particular product and where the family purchased it. That information is, is very helpful to the CPSC and to, and to us. The second thing that people can do is to connect us with affected families. So we're always looking for families to help us join the efforts. So far, most of the advocacy efforts have been from NASP again, have been from the consumer safety groups, but we think that there's a role for families to get involved. So if families are interested in sharing their stories, they can certainly contact me or they can email magnets at naspagan.org and they can share their stories with us and we can connect them to people as necessary or as they're interested lastly people can uh, physicians in particular can participate in research so for anybody that's interested in participating in research they certainly can let us know we're doing a number of descriptive studies using databases but we're also doing a a multi-center study we have about 30 sites currently enrolled and we're prospectively reviewing charts and then prospectively contacting families and trying to determine essentially risk factors uh, associated with these ingestions and these injuries
2: that all sounds fantastic i i'd like to pivot just a, a little bit and make a, a bit of a transition to, to some other, uh, other topics, you know, magnet ingestions haven't been the only advocacy projects with which you've been involved uh, as part of your role within the NASPGEN, uh policy and advocacy committee. I know there's been a push to increase support and funding for medically necessary foods. Um, can you talk a little bit about that issue and what you and NASPGN have done to help support children and families with special nutritional needs?
3: Yeah, sure. So uh, as you said, we have been involved in a, a number of other advocacy issues. Uh, medical foods was something we started. must have been, I think, even before Magnets, quite frankly. Essentially, the issue came about because, as you know, uh, enteral nutrition or formulas is a primary treatment for a number of GI conditions, Crohn's disease, eosinophilic esophagitis, and others. And there's a problem in getting those formulas approved for children, uh, particularly those without a tube if they're going to take them enterally And so we wanted to mandate coverage by insurance companies for families. And we started working on the issue. We Went to uh, first went to to Congress and different congressional members, and we weren't making um, much headway, and realized that there are many other groups working on this as well. And so, what we did is we consolidated our efforts, and again, our policy consultant Camille Bonte has been um, instrumental in in leading this on behalf of NASP again. So, we created a special uh, another rather nonprofit group called Patients and Providers for Medical Nutrition Equity. It's I forgot the number. I think we're over forty different groups now of different um, medical societies, professional societies, advocacy groups, uh, parent groups, and we're all essentially pushing for the same thing: so mandatory coverage of enteral nutrition for children with gastrointestinal and genetic or metabolic disease. And since we started that a couple of years ago, we've actually had a a fair amount of success. So we got this bill passed. So we've gotten coverage now for TRICARE patients. So TRICARE is an insurance for those in the military. So children in military families now have mandated coverage for medical foods. And we've used that sort of as a, a springboard to try to push coverage for all children across the country, regardless of other insurance types. And so we've gotten bills introduced to both the House and Senate with bipartisan support, which as you can imagine is no easy feat. Uh, A number of co-sponsors. I don't know how close we are to the finish line, but we're certainly making some headway and um, hope to get it across the finish line ideally this year, and if not, hopefully early next year.
1: So you mentioned a few characteristics or strengths that are important, following up being a key one.
3: I think what's most important is that you're passionate about an issue. This is, I mean, in the case of magnets, in the case of medical nutrition equity or medical foods, th- These are these are marathons, these are not sprints. If you're not passionate about the particular issue you're working on, there's just too many opportunities to give up you're you're probably not going to get across the finish line so you need to be passionate the the other thing that's helpful is to work in teams so find your partners work with the professional societies with patient advocates with colleagues that share your passion on a particular issue and work with them. The other thing I would say is try to get some quick wins. This is something that helps with motivation long-term. I'll share a story. When I first started advocacy, one of the first meetings I had on magnets, I walked into Senator Gilbrand's office and I was meeting with a young 20 something year old staffer. And I brought with me an X-ray that I had on an iPad of a kid that I just took care of in the hospital. And I showed the X-ray of the magnets in this kid's bowel. The woman seemed interested and you never quite know how interested they are or not in the particular issue you're talking about. And, you know, these 10 quick meetings and what have you. And so we had a perfectly fine meeting with her and it was fine. She seemed interested. But again, you never know. And left and had our other meetings during the day. And I went back to New York uh, late that night. And the next day I was in my office and my secretary dropped a message on my desk that said uh, Senator Gillibrand called you. And I, I went to her and I, and I said, you mean said the Senator herself called? <laughs> and she said, yes. To which I said, well, what did you say? And she said, well, I told her you were busy and I took a message. And <laughs> <laughs> I actually, I actually had to tell my, my secretary that if a, if a sitting Senator calls <laughs> me, that the, she should find, find me and put, put, put that Senator through. Um, but the, the point to the story is, I mean, that that's about as motivating, at least to me, as you can possibly get. And and the reason it turns out that she was calling me was because Senator Gilbrand had these magnets. Um, oh, wow. Bucky Balls was produced in New York. Uh, and the manufacturer, Craig Zucker, the, the CEO, the owner of it, is is was based out of New York at the time. She had these magnets. She had young children. And the staffer went back and told her about the meeting, and she immediately reacted senator gilbrand actually wanted to at the time introduce legislation into the senate back in 2012 to ban these products and we went so far as drafting legislation to ban these particular products that never went anywhere of course because the cpsc took action but that's what i mean by getting a quick win if you can You never know where these are gonna come, but these things can be exceptionally motivating. It certainly was for me at the time. And it's amazing how much impact I think we have that at least I never realized how impactful I can be and how much just having the MD behind your name or coming from a strong institution will open doors for you to share your message. And we really do know so much about these particular things and we know oftentimes what are the best public health or public policy decisions. And I think it's incumbent upon all of us to share those with with our leaders and we can reach them. When you get that sort of positive reinforcement, it's incredibly motivating to
0: to keep going. Wow. Yeah, that's that's awesome. I think the next question, I want to go a little bit of a different direction. You mentioned, you know, you are eighty percent research, you do clinical work. A lot of us, you know, already have all of our time accounted for and it's like hard for us to imagine doing anything else but obviously this is these are huge important issues how did you carve out time to do all of this advocacy work in what's already like a super busy schedule
3: well uh, I'm lucky in the sense that I have a, a very um, I'm at a supportive institution and um, I had the opportunity to do that and I'm not gonna lie a lot of it is on un- Nights and weekends in my own time. My my clinical commitments aren't um, as much, perhaps, as as some others. So that that's been particularly helpful. I, but I think ultimately, Peter, the answer to your question is that if you want to do it, you can. I, there's nothing stopping anybody from 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 doing this. It's it's really just about passion and commitment. I mean, I I, I get your larger point, of course. The idea of taking on a project as big as any of these. Is incredibly daunting, and not everyone necessarily wants to do that, and that's fine. You know, uh, we all—you you may want to invest your time more in clinical research or in patient care, or in any number of other things. Again, that's perfectly fine. But if you want to do it, there are ways to. First of all, again, I'm doing research in this. That's a good way to try to get some particular time carved out for you. But there are other things that people can do to get involved on a smaller scale. So you can join a professional society, you can participate in the Public Affairs Advocacy Committee, you can sign up for advocacy emails from the American Academy of Pediatrics and NASPAGAN, you can click on one of those links occasionally that will format a letter for you to send to a congressional member or senator, you can write an op-ed in a local paper, Um, you can donate to a cause that you feel particularly uh, passionate about related to healthcare or not, um, environmental change, whatever it is. Um, all those things count. That's all advocacy. You can also, don't forget, you can work locally. You can work on a smaller scale. So share another story, quick story. So I was on service, uh, and called into the ER for a, um, consult for a, uh, two-year-old that had a G-tube and was bitten by a rat in his apartment now we're in the Bronx, right? So first time that ever happened, but I guess <laughs> um, I remember the kid was fine. I mean, there was, there's nothing really to do for the, the G-tube and the mother was obviously concerned, but I was, I was furious. I mean, the kid lived in, Nitra, in a NYCHA apartment within New York City Housing Authority and essentially free housing for families at or near the poverty line, I should say. I was livid that um, this was the, the, the this kid was living in, the, in that circumstance. So I spent three hours on service that day dealing with this, not the medical issues, but the psychosocial issues. So I got the kid's address. I verified first and foremost that this is what's going on. So the mother showed me pictures of rats all over the apartment, opened up the cabinets with rats in them and the same with it. horrible. So I called the building supervisor, um, spoke to the secretary, spoke to the building supervisor directly, told her that the child was in the emergency room, that I expected the apartment to be fixed. Um, and then I wanted to hear back from them within 72 hours or I was going to the press and I was gonna also report it to the New York City Public Advocate. I called the New York City Public Advocate. I called that child's congressional um, member and I wrote a quick email to the board of NYCHA, the New York City Housing Authority. I had no idea which of these things would work, if any of them. I had no idea necessarily where to start. I just started, which I think is another important point for, for people to know. If you feel overwhelmed by an issue and you don't know where to start, it doesn't matter. Start at the beginning, wherever you start, you will pretty much eventually find your way to where you need to go. And in that, again, I spent about three hours with, with, uh, on that, that day. And by the end of the day, I got a call from the building saying that they were going to renovate the apartment. And I got a call from the mother by the end of the week that they had started renovation. And within a week that entire, the child's uh, entire apartment was gut renovated. They, Ripped the walls down to the studs. They replaced all the cabinets, the electrical, everything. Um, And uh, that child had a safe place to sleep. So there are things that you can do on a local level. I didn't try to fix public housing for all of New York City. Uh, I didn't necessarily have the bandwidth to do that, but I was able to help the one patient I was taking care of on that particular day. And there are things that all of us can do on a local level as well that are just as impactful.
0: Wow. 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 Yeah, that's That's a great story. story. (laughs) Um, I guess the take home is, you know, even if we can't do all that, you know, there are still small steps that we can take for whatever issue that we're passionate about. And uh, yeah,
3: it's amazing. It's amazing what you can accomplish with uh, naivety and enthusiasm. You know, (laughs) you just just start and go and and, uh, with enough enthusiasm, you'll get there.
2: Awesome. That's, that's great advice. Um, you know, you've given a lot of advice for people that might have an interest in advocacy or might have an interest in helping others, you know, whether it's at the, the really uh, small scale of things or even at bigger projects. Do, do you have any other advice for, for trainees or for junior faculty more broadly about their career or making their path in, in medicine or in pediatric GI?
3: The only advice I would have is is something that you know, I'll steal from, from others, but it, it doesn't make it any less true. Whatever you're passionate about, do it and do it well. Do it the best you can. And I think that the rest pretty much takes care of itself.
2: That's great. Thank you.
1: I love that advice. Well, thank you so much for sitting down and talking to us about these really great topics. Thanks for having me.
2: Well, we had a fantastic time talking to Dr. Brian Rudolph and want to thank him for taking the time to sit down with us. We hope you enjoyed listening as much as we did.
0: And if you don't already, be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at at and on Facebook at Pediatric GI Podcast for the latest news and updates on upcoming episodes. If you like what you heard and want to support the podcast, it would really help us out if you did one or all of the following three things. One, tell one person about the podcast. Two, leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help other discover our podcast. And three, on our Buzzsprout page, there's a link to support the show by making a donation to the NASBGAN Foundation. You can also get there through our website at www.naspagan.org. So the money you donate can help support some of the amazing things the NASBGAN Foundation is doing, including supporting pediatric GI research and public education and advocacy programs.
2: As always, the discussion, views, and recommendations of this podcast are the sole responsibility of the hosts and guests and are subject to change with advances in the field.
1: Thank you all for listening, and until next time, bye for now. Stay safe, everyone. Bye Bye for now.